In the book of Revelation, there are three sets of judgments. There are the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the vial judgments. The seal judgments are poured out upon pagan Rome. The trumpet judgments are poured out upon professing Christianity in both the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire as a result of their defection and backsliding. And the vile judgments are specifically poured out upon Antichrist and his kingdom. We are encouraged at the, at the very outset with regard to the victory in chapter 15 that the those who place their faith in Christ will win. Not one will fail to achieve this particular victory that is noted. They will sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. This will be the reward that God has for those who do remain faithful to him as the world does pass through these times of judgment. And indeed, we are in, even now, times of judgment where God is revealing his justice, his righteousness, and extending his grace to all who will hear and come to him. Our text this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 10, the first 12 verses. The divine institution of marriage, dear ones, is under attack. Civil courts are now caving in to the pressure to declare sodomite unions lawful marriages. There is no doubt that such civil action is evidence that God has given us over to the depravity of our minds and our lusts. However, I would submit to you that the civil action which has had even more catastrophic and disastrous effects upon the divine institution of marriage and which has brought marriage to its present deplorable state is the legalizing of divorce for any and every cause. When the civil courts determined that they could redefine a marriage by allowing people to exit a marriage upon a whim, that is, for whatever cause they might give, those courts created millions of unlawful marriages. For divorce without biblical grounds only leads to unlawful marriages. Marriages which Jesus Christ himself calls adulterous relationships. And perhaps that which is most pathetic about these millions of unlawful marriages is that the church of Jesus Christ has to a large extent silently assented to this legalized adultery 
and civil destruction of this most precious divine institution of marriage. <clears throat> but dear ones, divorce upon the grounds of man's mere whim is not a recent ploy of the enemy to destroy marriages, but rather is an ancient tactic of the devil. For we see that this very question was put to Christ some 2,000 years ago. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Matthew 19.3 <clears throat> We will consider this question today from our text in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And the main points from our text are these. First of all, the question concerning divorce for every cause in Mark 10, verses 1 through 2. Second, the argument against divorce for every cause in Mark chapter 10, verses 3 through 9. And thirdly, the argument for divorce for a particular cause in Mark chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. <clears throat> Let us then consider, first of all, the question concerning divorce for every cause. Look with me at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And he arose from thence and cometh into the coasts of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again, and as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Tempting him. <clears throat> There is a foundational truth which must be stated as we begin our study of this passage in Mark chapter 10. And it is this. All scripture is inspired of God. You may wonder what specifically that has to do with our text. Let me make the point. There can be no real contradictions in what God reveals in any place of Scripture with what he reveals in any other place of Scripture. Thus, as we study what Christ here says in Mark chapter 10 concerning divorce, we may be certain that what he says there will not contradict what he says in Matthew chapter 19 concerning divorce since they are parallel passages depicting the exact same incident in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. One account may have more information than the other. The other account may have less information than the other. But the two accounts cannot contradict one another. They must teach precisely the same truth about divorce. Therefore, I can make no apologies as I refer to Matthew's account at various places in the course of the sermon in order to make more clear the meaning of certain verses 
that we find in, Matt, in Mark's account, or vice versa, going to Mark to fill in more information that perhaps Matthew may lack or Luke might lack. Would not every faithful interpreter do precisely this in considering, for example, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30? There you recall the Lord Jesus asked his disciples, Whom do men say that I am? And in a very, very uh, short and brief account of this, uh, the Gospel account in Mark goes on to say that the disciples answered John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others one of the uh, prophets. In verse 29, And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Now, as we look at Matthew's account of that, and this is just an illustration of the point I'm trying to make, there is much more information as to what was said at that particular time. That is very important. In fact, if you recall, we spent three or four sermons looking at that information that's found in Matthew and that's covered in simply three or four verses in Mark. But that is because, again, God has so ordained the writing of the scriptures that certain of the Gospels will fill up and give more information concerning other Gospel accounts. <clears throat> In Mark 9.33, you recall that the Lord had come to Capernaum in Galilee, where there ensued the discussion as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And in the same context, Christ also taught the disciples concerning the danger of causing offenses that would lead others into sin and causing offenses even against oneself that would lead oneself into sin. In Mark 9, verses 42 through 50, Now the Lord begins his final journey, leaving Capernaum, heading south, he begins his final trek into Judea, ultimately to be in Jerusalem, where he will be crucified. While ministering to the people there in Judea, beyond the Jordan, the Pharisees bring to Christ a question intending to lay a trap for him. They ask, according to Mark 10.2, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Matthew's account of this question is more full. And in Matthew 19.3, this important phrase is added to that question. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Thus, the question put by the Pharisees to Christ was not one which asked if there was one cause for which a man may divorce his wife, but rather if every cause was sufficient grounds for a lawful divorce. 
The Pharisees no doubt knew that the Lord had earlier in his ministry, for example, in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, stated only one grounds for a lawful divorce, namely fornication. The Pharisees now believe they have a point upon which they may bring about a division among the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. For this was a controverted and disputed question amongst the teachers in Israel. What are the lawful grounds for divorce? Some following Rabbi Shammai restricted a lawful divorce to one cause, namely fornication. Whereas others following Rabbi Hillel allowed a lawful divorce for any and every cause that a man might offer. Thus the trap, so the Pharisees thought, was set for the Lord to bring about a division because either way they believed that it would bring a division amongst the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something that they sought to achieve to, to whittle down the followers, to, to take away the followers of Christ so that he didn't have a ministry. See, they envied. They envied the Lord Jesus Christ. They envied the truth. They envied the righteousness. They envied the following of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Before moving on to Christ's response, it should be noted that the scripture views a lawful divorce as the dissolution of a marriage and not a mere separation from room and board. For if a lawful divorce only meant that a husband and wife were separated from one another, as is taught by the Romish church, they would continue to be husband and wife. And thus the scripture could never approve of a lawful remarriage subsequent to a lawful divorce under any circumstances. Only the physical death of a spouse could provide a lawful reason for one to remarry if, in fact, a divorce is merely a separation from room and board. However, <clears throat> since God does approve of a lawful remarriage following a lawful divorce, as we shall see, we must conclude that a lawful divorce dissolves the marital bond between a husband and wife as if the husband and wife were dead to one another. Where does the scripture speak of a lawful remarriage? <clears throat> Just very, very briefly. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. There we read these words. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, <clears throat> and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. 
And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. <clears throat> Here we see that there is remarriage that is permitted for the woman who is put away, divorced, for this particular cause, which is stated as some uncleanness in her. And she not only is uh, allowed to marry remarry once, but she is even permitted to remarry again after that if there is a lawful divorce because, again, a lawful divorce dissolves the marital bond. Not just any divorce, not just any divorce that the civil courts may render, but a lawful biblical divorce granted upon biblical grounds. Again, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, <clears throat> again, warrant for remarriage, which would then suppose and grant a lawful divorce as being the dissolution of the previous marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 26 says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. The Apostle Paul is talking about under the present distressful circumstances that it is better, he would argue, for a person not to marry, but rather to be single, because they would be able to devote themselves entirely to the Lord. There would be less stress uh, upon them with regard to serving the Lord if they did not have a wife and family. But he continues, <clears throat> having said that that he believes is preferable, he doesn't say that it's sinful to marry, however. He says, art thou bound unto a wife? That is, art thou married unto a wife, joined to a wife in marriage? Seek not to be loosed. So if you're bound, if you're married, don't seek to escape that marriage, to be divorced, to break that bond from that marriage. Art thou loosed from a wife? In other words, art thou divorced from a wife? Seek not a wife. Don't seek another wife, he says. But, verse 28, he continues, But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. Again, remember, this is under the present circumstances in which he's writing. Times of distress. He says, if you have been lawfully divorced, don't seek to marry again because in the present circumstances it's preferable not to be married. But if you do marry after Having been lawfully divorced, you do not sin. <clears throat> and we would also 
propose that in Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32, and in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, again, and we'll look at Matthew 19:9 in greater detail today, but we would also propose and submit that these verses as well grant a remarriage to one who is lawfully divorced. Therefore, dear ones, a lawful divorce, that is a divorce upon biblical grounds, is not a mere separation, but rather a termination. We come to the second main point in our text, and that is the argument against divorce for every cause. Mark chapter 10, verses 3 through 9, we find the following words. And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. Wherefore, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. <clears throat> the Lord's argument against divorce for every cause consists in taking the Pharisees back <clears throat> to the scriptures. He answers their question with a question. What did Moses command you? They asked, is it lawful to divorce uh, a, a woman, a wife, for every cause? <clears throat> the Lord responds by asking them, what did Moses command you? In Mark 10.3. <clears throat> you see, what Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel have to say about divorce may be interesting as it relates to the matter of divorce. But what is all important is what the scripture itself says about divorce. What God says. For all teachings and all writings of man, including our own subordinate standards, must be tested by the supreme standard of God's word before they are believed to be true. The preaching that comes from this pulpit must undergo the same scrutiny before it is believed to be true. Otherwise, we make man the Lord of our conscience. And in so doing, we deny true Christian liberty, which Christ himself purchased for us by his death upon the cross. Dear ones, we are not only set free from bondage to sin, including its guilt and its condemnation and its power, but we are also set free unto Christ, set free unto the righteousness of Christ, set free unto the truth of Christ with all of his benefits. 
And when we allow man to be the Lord of our conscience, we deny the very liberty which Christ purchased for us, which is that he should be the Lord of our conscience and that we should not be enslaved to man, to believe what man says merely upon man's own authority. The Pharisees, in their response, Christ asked them, What did Moses command you? Well, the Pharisees, in their response, simply say, in verse 4 of Mark chapter 10, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. Yes, indeed, Moses did say in Deuteronomy 24.1 that the woman in view there was to be given a bill of divorcement and then divorced. But as you can see, the Pharisees have not really attempted to answer the real question that Christ put to them. What did Moses command you about the lawfulness of divorcing your wives for every cause? See, if you fill out the question, that's what Christ was saying to them. In appealing to, to Moses, he was saying, what did Moses command you or say about this issue of divorcing for, for any and every cause? For the real question in Deuteronomy 24.1 has to do with the cause of the divorce, not so much the fact of the divorce, the cause. They did not mind themselves asking Christ about the lawfulness of divorces for every cause because they desired to divide his followers. They tried to entrap him. But when Christ puts the same question back to them, they avoid it like the plague. They don't want to go back to describe or to discuss the cause. They want to simply state the fact. Well, Moses said that a, a writ of divorce should be given to the woman and sent out of the house. You know, what hypocrisy on the part of these men, these Pharisees, caught in their own hypocrisy. In reality, Deuteronomy 24.1 does not support divorces for every cause at all. In no way does it support divorces for every cause. For it states one cause for the divorce that occurs there. In Deuteronomy 24.1 the cause there is because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Literally, just reading right from the original language, it says this, because he hath found in her nakedness of a thing. It found in her nakedness of a thing. The word nakedness refers to various shameful sexual acts in Leviticus 18 and in Leviticus 20. And amongst those is adultery. Well, the obvious objection to the nakedness in Deuteronomy 24.1, meaning adultery, is that adultery 
was a capital crime. In Deuteronomy 22.22, it says that, that a man or a woman who lay, lay with one another, being married, uh, ought to be put to death. <clears throat> now, that, that obviously does present a problem. If they're dead, how can you divorce them? But I would suggest that it is possible that Deuteronomy 24.1 does, in fact, refer to divorce for adultery in certain cases, even if blatant adultery was punished by death. Consider the following particular passages. In Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her. This is a secret, particular act of adultery. No witnesses to it. And it goes on to explain what should happen in such a case. This is a trial by ordeal. And you remember the bitter water that she is to drink, uh, the curses that are pronounced upon her. And if she has sinned, in this way, her belly is to swell. If she is guiltless, then she has no effects from this particular trial of ordeal. But it doesn't say if her belly swells, take her out and put her to death. Nothing is stated to that effect at all. Yet, even if she did commit adultery, there were no witnesses to that particular crime. And would appear she is not then put to death. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, you'll remember in the case of Joseph and Mary. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. He didn't take her before the, the courts to say that she deserves to be put to death, but rather was mindful, and it says, it has this qualification, he was a just man. He was a man who followed the law of God. And rather than putting her before the courts to be tried and to be found guilty and to be put to death, uh, he rather puts her aside quietly or secretly. That's his intent. Because at this point, you realize in the account, he didn't know by way of revelation that what was conceived within her was of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> At least it had not been revealed to him by the Holy Ghost, by the Word of God. No doubt it was communicated to him by Mary, but, but subsequently it is revealed to him. Uh, I, would, I would submit to you that again, that this most likely was due to the fact that there were no witnesses, as in Numbers chapter 5, no witnesses. 
and therefore he had a right to deal with her in a way that did not subject her to capital punishment. Again, in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, there we find the woman who was caught in adultery. There are witnesses to this particular situation. However, the Lord, in effect, does not excuse the sin of what she has done, but in effect says that she is not deserving of death because the witnesses who have brought the charges before the Lord have, in effect, made themselves guilty by setting her up, by seeking to entrap her, so that they were themselves caught up in the very sin that they accused her of. They were accessories, as it were, to the crime. Therefore, they could not testify against her. Again, there were no legitimate witnesses. There were no lawful witnesses. And in this case, there is nothing more said with regard to any kind of judicial penalty. Again, although the death, although death may have been the full punishment of the law in the case of blatant adultery, Nevertheless, it would appear that the death sentence might be commuted due to extenuating circumstances and a lawful divorce permitted instead. If this is the case, God speaking through Moses in Deuteronomy 24, 1, teaches nothing different than what Christ himself teaches in the Gospels. This, in fact, we would expect to be the case inasmuch as God has ordained marriage and God has established marriages, that his law concerning marriages would be the same in the Old Covenant as in the New Covenant. Because marriage was established from the very foundation of creation. It is not a distinctively uh, Jewish institution. Furthermore, if there is a reasonable interpretation which is exegetically and contextually sound that reconciles the teaching of God concerning divorce in the Old Testament with the teaching of God in the New Testament, it would seem only right to consider that interpretation very seriously. Going back to Mark chapter 10 now. <clears throat> the Lord then in Mark 10.5 states the reason why God gave the command concerning divorce in Deuteronomy 24.1. And that was due to the hardness and callousness of the hearts of men in looking for every reason in which to divorce their wives. In other words, because men had such a sinful state of mind and they had begun to divorce their wives for whatever cause they decided upon, the Lord specifically spelled out to them 
one lawful cause to divorce their wives, namely fornication. That is, some nakedness that is found in the wife. If she were not put to death for the fornication committed, she may be divorced after having been given a certificate of divorce. Thus, the precept in Deuteronomy 24.1 is a curb to the licentious excesses of man's hardened heart and a protection for the wife against the tyranny of a husband who had no lawful grounds for a divorce. God is looking after women. Now, in these particular laws, whether it's the law that's stated by Moses in Deuteronomy 24 or it's the words of Christ in, in Mark chapter 10 or Matthew chapter 19, it's stated in terms of the, the man divorcing the wife as if, as if the wife would never have a reason, a lawful reason to divorce her husband. And I simply want to uh, say that Many, many times, as you look at the way laws in the scripture are worded, that many times that which is stated in a very unilateral sense, speaking only to one gender, to only the man, that would be, it would likewise be appropriate uh, to the woman as well. Uh, again, a woman, I would submit to you, has the same right to divorce a husband who is found guilty of this particular sin, as does a man to divorce his wife. <clears throat> Christ proceeds then from Mark chapter 10, verse 5 to Mark 10, verses 6 through 9, to appeal to another text which Moses penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He appeals to Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. The Lord, in effect, embarrasses the Pharisees here by demonstrating that Moses did not allow divorce for every cause in Deuteronomy 24.1. Otherwise, he would have contradicted himself in what he previously penned by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 24 where divorce for every cause would make pure folly of the original institution of marriage. For Christ argues this way, first of all, he argues that marriage is the oldest institution among man. When he says in Mark 10:6, from the beginning of the creation, marriage is the oldest. It's not a recent Innovation. It's one established from the very foundation of the earth. Secondly, the Lord argues marriage is a divine institution given to man. For he says, God made them male and female. God made them male and female in Mark 10, 6. Since marriage, dear ones, is a divine institution, no king, no court, no pope, no church has the authority to alter in the least what God declares to constitute a lawful marriage or to declare 
what ends a lawful marriage. No man has that right. God alone. That is his prerogative uniquely. And for what purpose did God make them male and female, having created the woman out of the man's rib? What was the purpose? That they might be joined together in holy wedlock for their mutual support, first of all, for their mutual support, second, to prevent fornication, and third, to bring forth holy offspring to the glory of God. Men, do we treat our wives as if they are bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh? Wives, do you treat your husbands as if you have proceeded from their rib? For you have through Eve. Do we men love our wives as our own flesh? Will we think of our wives before we think of ourselves? Will we pray for them as we pray for ourselves? Will we help them, encourage them as we hope to do for ourselves? See, this is all implied in being created by God, male and female. And that woman was taken from man. Divorce, dear ones, for every cause cannot be, therefore, the intent of God when God himself made the woman from the man's rib that she might be near his heart in the sacred estate of marriage, completely inconsistent with the original institution of marriage. Thirdly, Jesus argues, marriage is a dutiful institution. For the Lord says in Mark 10:7, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. You see, the duty of the husband is to, cleave, to leave and cleave, as is the wife. To forsake all other earthly relationships. That is, in comparison to the devotion that a husband has for his wife, he is, as it were, to forsake all other earthly relationships and cleave to her alone. And so is she to him. A marriage above all other relationships, even above the parent-child relationship, is to be cherished according to God's institution because a man and a woman are to leave their parents and to cleave to their husband or wife. Of course, a woman, whatever is said here of a man is said of the woman as well. Parents, we must learn as our children grow up and as they do approach marriage, we must learn to let our children go, especially as they are united to a man or a woman in marriage. 
We must learn to let our children go when they become married and not unnecessarily interfere in their lives. They have established a new home. They have new obligations and duties which they owe to one another first and foremost. If marriage, dear ones, is above all other earthly relationships, certainly, absolutely then, there is no room for divorce for every cause. So Jesus argues. Fourthly, marriage is a unified institution, the Lord Jesus argues. In Mark 10.8, And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. Beloved, married couples are not to view themselves as two separate individuals having nothing to do with one another except that they share the same house or the same bed, but they are to view themselves as one flesh. One flesh by way of an enduring covenant till death do us part. Which oneness, this oneness is illustrated in their physical intimacy one with another. Thus a marriage that has two individuals that do not enjoy being with one another. And do not have the same spiritual, familial, financial goals is a complete paradox to what the Lord is saying in this passage. There is to be a oneness, a like-mindedness in this relationship above all other earthly relationships. That ought to be true in this relationship of marriage. Two people heading in two different directions who may be called lawfully married is a paradox and a violation of the divine institution of marriage. Our earthly marriages are to be, in fact, a living, breathing picture of the heavenly marriage between Christ and his church. And so I ask you this day, dear ones, do our marriages so reflect the love that Christ has for his church and the submission that the church has to Christ that our children are able to understand these deep spiritual truths or are they rather confused and perplexed and driven away from Christ as they view our marriage because it doesn't look anything at all like the marriage between Christ and his church. You see, our marriages, parents, ought to be drawing our children not only to ourselves. There ought not to be simply a bond established between us and our children, but our marriages ought to be drawing our children to Jesus Christ to understand the great love that God through Christ has for his church and the, and the submission that the church has 
to Christ himself. Christ argues then in this particular argument that since marriage makes a man and a woman one flesh, divorce for every cause is not taught in the scriptures. And then in Mark 10.9, the Lord comes to his conclusion as it pertains to his, his arguments to the Pharisees. Therefore, in light of what Moses declares in Genesis 2, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Christ concludes his argument to the Pharisees by saying, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Here in Mark 10.9, Christ answers the original question that was put to him back in Mark 10.2 by the Pharisees. Here the Lord, in effect, says, No, it is not lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause, for what God hath lawfully joined together, let no man unlawfully put asunder for every cause. Christ therefore condemns all divorces that are not based upon a lawful cause, which he now proceeds to make known to his disciples. We come to the third and final point. The argument for divorce due to a particular cause. In Mark chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife, and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Mark states the general rule of marriage, that marriage is till death do us part. That whoever puts away his wife, divorces his wife, commits adultery if he marries another. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. <clears throat> this is the general rule. But we go again back to Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, where we find an exception to the general rule stated by the Lord. And again, remember, this is all referring to the same Incident. This is not referring to a different incident. This is referring to the same uh, speech that the Lord gave in Matthew 19.9. So that these words that we find in Matthew 19.9 are a part of what the Lord said to his disciples on this particular occasion. Matthew 19.9 the words spoken by the Lord are stated in this way. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Here the Lord, who instituted marriage, gives his own divine warrant 
for a lawful divorce and a lawful remarriage. Some have objected that marriage is not in view here at all, but simply an engagement or a betrothal, since the Lord uses the word fornication. But it should be noted that neither the Pharisees nor Jesus had been discussing engagement or betrothal. For the passages of Scripture from, which, from the Old Testament, which are alluded to or cited, namely Deuteronomy 24.1 and Genesis 2, speak of marriage. They speak not of betrothal. There are also those who would argue that the exception clause, which has just been read in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, applies only to divorce and not to remarriage. That is, one may lawfully divorce for fornication, but not lawfully remarry. However, one cannot disconnect a lawful divorce from a lawful remarriage in this passage or in any other passage. We've already pointed out that there are passages, other passages in the scripture, which warrant a lawful remarriage after a lawful divorce. Deuteronomy 24.1, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 27 and 28. The particular location, going back to, and if you want to look at Matthew 19.9, I'm going to say a few things about that passage right now. The particular location of the exception clause there, that clause is, except it be for fornication. The location of that exception clause does not alter the meaning of the whosoever clause at all. Whether that exception clause occurs at the beginning of the whosoever clause, in other words, except it be for fornication, whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another. <clears throat> or whether the exception clause is put in the middle of the two whosoever clauses, so that it reads, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication and shall marry another. Or if it's put at the end of the whosoever clause, the final whosoever clause, whosoever shall put away his wife and, and we could add again, it's implied, and whosoever shall marry another, except it be for fornication. You see, there are two parts to this whosoever clause. Whosoever shall put away his wife and whosoever shall marry another. And these two parts are bound together by the connective conjunction and. Thus, you cannot qualify the one part without qualifying the other part. You can't qualify one whosoever clause without qualifying both whosoever clauses. And if the whole whosoever clause with its two parts is so qualified by except it be for fornication, and I hope I'm not losing you, 
Then the conclusion, he committed adultery, must also reflect the same qualification. That is, in the case of fornication, a man does not commit adultery if he puts away his wife and marries another. The conclusion is affected by that exception to the two whosoever clauses. Well, let's try another exception clause. I'll make one up. Actually, I'm not making it up from scratch, but I found it in a book by John Reynolds. Um, and let's see the effect that the exception has on all the parts. Actually, I slightly altered his example, but nevertheless, it's for the most part taken from John Reynolds. And this is the whosoever clause that I would submit so that you can see perhaps in a different way how the exception affects both sides of the whosoever and affects ultimately the conclusion. Whosoever draweth his sword, except it be in self-defense, and killeth a man, committeth murder. And whosoever assisteth him that killeth a man, committeth murder. Except it be in self-defense. You see how the whosoever or how the exception affects the whole clause. So likewise in this case. <clears throat> Thus the Lord permits, but does not demand a lawful divorce in the case of fornication. He does not require a divorce in the event of fornication, but he does permit divorce in the event of fornication. And I simply mentioned that I don't have time to to go into any great detail. If you want to, to go into greater detail about the subject, I refer you to the uh, series of sermons that were preached a while back on the whole subject of divorce and remarriage to, to find a greater detail about these matters. But I do refer to you that Paul adds in speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he adds to what Christ has said by teaching that an unbeliever who willfully deserts a believer also dissolves the marital bond, which also allows then the believer to remarry in 1 Corinthians 7.15. And so the Lord silences the the question, the objections of the Pharisees. In closing, dear ones, I'd like to make just very, very briefly some, some practical considerations, something for you to practically use. Though I know this sermon tends to be, because of the nature of the sermon, more, uh, maybe more heady, you know, less uh, applicatory. Um, nevertheless, very important truths that are brought out, which, again, if the Church of Jesus Christ were applying these truths, uh, how much more happy, how much more uh, faithful marriages would be. If the courts within our lands were applying these truths, it would not be sending 
again, millions of, of people out who are simply living in adulterous relationships according to the Lord Jesus Christ. I would encourage those of you who are not married at this point <clears throat> to weigh very carefully what is said that you enter not into any kind of an unlawful marriage. And that's partly the responsibility of the minister to check out, to make sure the, the, the couple who is being married, whether they have either been previously married, whether there uh, is any unfinished business with regard to uh, previous divorces, engagements, uh, any type of close relationship that the couple is, uh, who has gathered before him to be married uh, that would constitute an incestuous relationship, perhaps an in-law relationship. He's required to go through all these steps so that those whom he marries, he can in good conscience put his stamp of approval on that they're entering into a lawful marriage. But that's your responsibility as well, dear ones, to investigate parents, to do that investigation for your children, uh, young people, children, to be very, very concerned about these issues. It's also a reason why I believe uh, we as, as families ought to take very seriously the whole matter of courtship. That we do not simply cast ourselves into relationships or throw our children into relationships that very quickly they would enter into marriage and be, again, forever unhappy because they learn subsequently what type of a person they've married. They didn't take the time. They didn't take the needed um, uh, resources or, or uh, energy to investigate, and to know the person to whom they are to be joined. The importance of taking these things seriously. I would submit to all of you who are married that we cannot succeed in having a marriage that fulfills the goals intended by the Lord without Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ in our marriage, without humbling ourselves before Him, without trusting in Him implicitly as our prophet who alone gives us the information we need, His will concerning our marriage, without believing and taking Jesus Christ as our priest who alone can redeem our marriage because we're sinners. We will blow it continuously apart from Jesus Christ. But when we blow it, there is one to whom we can come when we sin against the Lord, when we sin against the one whom we are married too. There is forgiveness. And if we come to Jesus Christ, our priest, we will find forgiveness. We will lean upon his righteousness. We will trust in his intercessory prayers on our behalf. We will look to him alone for our own eternal salvation. We will pray for the salvation and the sanctification of our spouse. Because he's our priest.
And we will come to Jesus Christ as our king who subdues all of his enemies unto himself. The enemies that yet are within us, our evil passions, our lusts, our anger, our pride, our selfishness and self-centeredness, coming to Jesus Christ as our King and pleading with Him to conquer, to overcome all of these besetting sins that hinder us from enjoying our spouse as we ought to. Dear ones, Jesus is our Redeemer and He came not simply to redeem us personally, but He came to redeem us as well in all of our relationships. He came to redeem us in our relationship of marriage. The Lord Jesus cares for marriage. He instituted it. He provides for it. Let us therefore, dear ones, not lose hope. Let us find in Jesus alone our hope for seeing realized the kind of marriage that he wants us to have and we ought to desire. For, dear ones, when he died upon the cross, he purchased everything we need. He purchased every benefit, every grace, every affection that we need to serve him and to live before him a holy life. It's already been purchased for us. It's a matter of us going to the Lord by faith and availing ourselves of that grace and that mercy with regard to our marriages. Lastly, I would simply say to you, if our religion does not work with him or her who is nearest to us, our spouse, how will it work with others who are further from us. This is pure hypocrisy, dear ones. We expect to save the world, but do we allow our marriage to go to pot? Pure hypocrisy. God wants us to invest the time, the energy, and the prayers to make our marriage reflect the union between Christ and His church. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious Father, we come to Thee through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king. We come to Thee, our God, and rest in Him as our righteousness, as our only hope of eternal salvation, as our only hope of sanctifying our marriage. We pray, Father, that Thou would give to us the hope, give to us the faith to look to Christ and to believe, Lord, that the, the purchase of those graces and gifts and affections has already taken place. Give to us, O Lord, therefore the the grace to look to Christ for all that we need. We ask, Lord, that Thou would bless each and every marriage that is, that is represented here. Those who hear this sermon by tape, that, Father, they would not lose hope. 
that they would look to Christ, no matter how desperate, Father, their marriage may seem, that they may look to the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus has come to redeem sinners and to redeem sinful marriages. We ask, O Father, that Thou would teach us to offer to Thee even our marriages as we offer our lives as living sacrifices. That Thou would use our marriages, O Lord, to glorify Christ, to lead others to Jesus Christ. For we ask this in the Lord's name. Amen. I'll in thy mercy gladly joy. I'll in thy mercy gladly joy. For thou my miseries, for thou my miseries. Considered hast, thou hast my soul. Considered hast, thou hast my soul. Known in adversities. Known in adversities. And thou hast not enclosed me. And thou hast not enclosed me. Within the enemy's hand. Within the enemy's hand. And by thee have my feet been made. And by thee have my feet been made in a large room to stand. In a large room to stand. O Lord, upon me mercy have. O Lord, upon me mercy have. For trouble is on me. For trouble is on me, mine eye, my belly, and my soul. Mine eye, my belly, and my soul, with grief consumeth thee. With grief consumeth thee, because my life with grief is spent. Because my life with grief is spent, my years with sighs and groans, my years with sighs and groans, my strength doth fail and for my sin, my strength doth fail and for my sin, consumed are my bones. Consumed are my bones. I was a scorn to all my foes. I was a scorn to all my foes. <coughs> and to my friends a fear. And to my friends a fear. And specially reproached of those. 
and specially reproached of those that were my neighbors near. That were my neighbors near. When they saw me, they from me fled. When they me saw, they from me fled. Even so I am forgot. Even so I am forgot. As men are out of mind when dead. As men are out of mind when dead. <clears throat> I'm like a broken pot. I'm like a broken pot. Please stand with me, dear ones, and receive the blessing of the Lord. From Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they 
To admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.